And welcome to Philosophy Casting Call, the podcast that features underrepresented philosophers. My name is Elena Gauthier-Mamril, and I'm your host and resident casting director. Today, I have the pleasure of sharing with you my conversation with Anna V. Anna is a PhD student in philosophy at the University of Sheffield. And today we talk about their work on trigger warnings and philosophy of language, or specifically the epistemology of conversational silence. So just a content note, since we are discussing trigger warnings, there will be passing mentions to topics and themes like sexual assault or PTSD. So do with that what you will. Hopefully you will enjoy my conversation with them. I just want to mention that the article we discuss, Anna's article we discuss in this interview, has not been published yet. But I will link to it as soon as it exits the vortex of academic peer review. I will, of course, link all the other mentioned books and articles in the show notes. And here it is. Welcome, Anna V. Hi, Anna. Hi. Thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. It's really excited. Really exciting to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about your work. Um, would you like to introduce yourself for the listeners? Yes, um, I'm Anna. I'm a PhD student in philosophy in Sheffield. I'm mostly working on feminist philosophy of language, what we might call political, social philosophy of language. I'm not just limiting myself to like feminist issues, just in general, how we speak, what we speak, that's what I'm interested in, how that impacts our political reality. And I'm also really interested in social epistemology. And yeah, that's, that's kind of what I do. <laughs> and how did you first come to philosophy and then to this particular area of philosophy? Mm. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So I kind of, I think I first encountered the word philosophy um, in a very old book that was just lying around at home. And that was my mum's old history book, because I was like a kid who really liked to read, as I guess a lot of kids who end up doing philosophy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess very like much, very much fit the stereotype there. And yeah, I kind of like saw this, there was this page about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, and I was just really curious what that was. And I asked my mom, what is philosophy? And she was like, I don't know. No idea. <laughs> Who, knows? Who knows? Do we know now? <laughs> exactly. Do we know now? Like, I don't think I can give a, a straight answer to that question even now. And then, I mean, I guess, you know, I went to, um, to school um, in Austria. And in Austria, I don't know. I know it's like different, different countries, but we have in the kind of school type I went to, we had philosophy and psychology as subjects that we just kind of had on our core curriculum. And everybody had a couple of lessons a week. One year was psychology, the other year was philosophy. And 
yeah, I just absolutely fell in love with it in that year. Like when I was doing it, I also chose it as an extra subject. So I had it like four or five hours a week <laughs> in school. But largely, I think that was because I had a really, really good teacher. Like she was very engaging. She taught us like such a variety of things, of traditions. And it was just, yeah, there was like so much discussion in the class. And that was, I think, what actually kind of like made me think about it as a subject to study. And I wrote my final project about Hannah Arendt, which was kind of like, yeah, sparked that interest in that kind of mm -hmm. philosophical, political kind of stuff. I haven't done Hannah Arendt at any point ever again um, as a topic in in my studies but yeah that was like one of the starters and yeah I don't actually know that much about about her or that topic yeah same I yeah. I've read some Hannah Arendt and I've used her commentary on Kant's anthropology and legal philosophy for my math but she's kind of always been kind of been a flirtation so yeah. she's kind of always been around there whenever the main focus yeah Yeah, I recently like came across this something that was no surprises there and not very prominent whenever she was mentioned in philosophy. That she wrote like a lot of really racist stuff. Like some of her stuff was really, really oh, horrible. No. <laughs> um and yeah, I mean I'm not competent to like speak about that because I yeah. neither do I know her philosophy very well. Mm -hmm. It was just in school I encountered it and I really liked it. Nor do I know well enough what what exactly the things were that were problematic but yeah I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of racist stuff in there I mean she hung out with Heidegger so yes <laughs> um <Good laughs> enough <point>. said <laughs> but yeah definitely there's there's some interesting things and I it's worthwhile noting that when we think about women philosophers in political philosophy she's one of the only names that is mainstream yeah. now Yeah, so, absolutely. I think it's important that people read her and know about her. Yeah. Uh, my personal experience is that some that some people I know who work on Arendt oh, really? have some troubling political <laughs> yeah. views. <laughs> but uh, yeah. so that gave me pause. But uh, yeah, so you never touched Arendt again. Yeah, I started and then you went into another in direction. Austria. And I kind of did mostly practical philosophy. Like I think that's a very german way to say it and like it's kind of moral philosophy kind of stuff and i also studied sociology so one of the things that was really like nice mm -hmm. studying back at home is that like we we don't pay a high tuition fees um it's more or less free for a particular amount of time so i studied two mm -hmm. subjects instead of just one um, I just did two courses and the other course that I did was sociology. And I think in sociology, I encountered a lot of kind of, you know, discursive, language formative, social theory kind of stuff. Actually, much more than I encountered in philosophy, where I was look more doing kind of stuff on, I guess, I was very interested mm -hmm. in like historical injustice and feminist philosophy just very broadly. But yeah, and then I kind of got a bit more interested in the whole speech act theory kind of stuff that was very interesting. And then I went on an um, exchange year, um, year abroad, and there I did a lot more feminist philosophy of language stuff. 
um, and propaganda and, and learned a lot about that. Um, and then I decided to apply for a PhD in the UK. Um, and here I am. <laughs> As all good ideas start. <laughs> that, that's really interesting. I mean, what would you say the philosophy curriculum was like that you felt that it was more discursive in sociology? Mm. Because for in my yeah. experience, I was, I like to say, raised <laughs> continental mm. in a way that present. I encountered the culture feminine and Lucie Rigueré and Julia Kristeva, who, you know, are problematic also in their own right. But for me, that was the turning point of a different way of approaching knowledge and of approaching conceptualizations, mm -hmm. the whole idea of like the organic concept, the womb concept. And yeah. so for me, that was very much, that's very much a part of French Francophone philosophical culture. But I'm aware of that, at least in English, you know, speech act theory is like completely different. It's like a similar desire, but executed in a completely different way. So I'm curious how it was in, in Austria. Yeah, so um, I think it's kind of, when I think about my my master's, like, so I did the two master's, I did a master in philosophy, and I also did a master in oh, sociology, wow. um, and yeah, I was like complete nerd about all of it, I loved it, I loved studying, I, I really, really enjoyed it so much, and I think when I was doing philosophy in the philosophy department, that was much more analytical philosophy, you know, also I'm still doing analytical philosophy now, but I think what I what really like helped me just develop my interests was that exchange with the more social theory kind of stuff that was much more what you'd call continental philosophy mm. that I encountered partly in the sociology department. That wasn't all that we did in the sociology department, but I took a lot of classes on gender and so on there. And a friend and I, we did like a really big study, I guess, or like a project on the construction of gender in security discourses. And we just took a bunch of city protocols and when they talked about security and just looked at how they're constructing gender. And I found that so interesting, this kind of discursive, these discursive pat patterns that we found there, like how, you know, you think about this in theory, and we were like, well, let's take, let's let's look what it's actually like. And it was it was pretty astounding how much it fit with the theory that we were kind of reading at the time. And that was the one the one part. And then the other part was more, yeah, the Austinian speech act stuff that I was doing in the philosophy department. And I approached the Austinian kind of framework from a political angle because I first learned about it in a political philosophy of language course. And yeah, I guess that's, that's somehow how these interests like formed along each other in a way, in, a, in, in, in these kind of like, yeah, interactions. I wouldn't encounter Judith Butler, for example, in the philosophy department, but I would encounter her in the sociology department. Yeah. And like, but then in the sociology department, I would also do obviously like empirical research and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And that was, yeah, I guess, like, also gave me really, like, this perspective in a way of, like, well, let's look at these real political phenomena. But I can do that with philosophy as well, with theory. And I, I prefer theory. And why do <laughs> you prefer theory? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, there's something really nice about researching empirically. And, like, even, you know, statistics, like, 
can be super exciting. Like I had a great time doing like the advanced statistics courses. You have like really like big data sets and you see these 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 tendencies and, and that kind of stuff in the data sets and it's great. And yeah, you have like these like really interesting questions there as well. But I think I was just always more on this like kind of theoretical side, just like thinking a lot about the theoretical aspects of all of that. Um, that's just something that's always appealed to me a lot. And I think doing empirical research, like, I mean, obviously, so does theory, has brings a lot of moral concerns with it in a lot of regards. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that a lot of sociological research is, you know, like, obviously, like, historically, we're coming from social anthropology and so on, has a lot of, like, colonial undertones yeah. often. And I think that, like, the kind of research that we do now in social or sociology departments like it's different from that and it wasn't the social anthropology department either but yeah so that said like researching in teams that was great I really enjoyed that that was really cool and as I said we did like a lot of discourse studies like discourse research which is very theoretical kind of empirical research but on my own I think I just prefer yeah thinking through issues and just sticking with theory and reading theory and and so you're working on philosophy of language now I found you on twitter actually and you were working on your tagline says you're working on conversational silence so could you explain what you mean by that yeah sure yeah I think I mentioned before that I came to the whole speech act thing I'm not working on speech act Austinian speech acts right now actually but that was kind of like I think where that interest started. So I came from that from this kind of political, um, I don't know, perspective in this particular course that was on gender and language. And there we like did the we we read like the speech acts um, and silencing the silencing paper by Ray Langton, which is like a paper that like a lot of people read and know. Um, and that's kind of how I got to speech acts originally. And I was very interested in the whole silencing research and how silencing happens, different kinds of silencing, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I mean, there's like a lot of things like in the, in that kind of literature that is big topic, like the whole pornography angle that a lot of that has. Like that's a separate issue because obviously there's a tendency in these original works to be like, well, pornography silences women. There's like more work that's going on now as well in terms of feminist pornography um, and so on that that isn't just this we can't stick with this claim that all pornography does that but anyways like I think what I was just very interested in was this kind of silencing how people are prevented from speaking from doing things but then at the same time I was also just always very interested in like well there's so much that remains unsaid and we can we don't we can't say everything always like that's the one thing but like I think I've just been in like a lot of interactions where people just were silent like in the conversation right and just didn't react to what you said at all or just in a very like limited way in a very unconscious way which is like you know a little move of the head or something and yeah I think I was just very interested in like how do we make sense of that philosophy of language it's all about speaking exactly all about or about how people are prevented from speaking. But sometimes we choose to do something 
with silence in conversations, like we remain silent distinctively in order to bring something across. And I was kind of like a bit lost on like, does anybody explain that? And I didn't find much. Um, so I was kind of like originally thinking I want to connect that to like ignorance and and so on. But that was getting way too big. <laughs> like the project was exploding. So I was just like, well, no, I'm just going to look at like, you know, in like my supervisor helped me a lot, like making that smaller. Um, and I'm just going to look at like these different aspects of how silence as an active conversational contribution comes up and how that isn't like a neutral thing. Um, how that has a role like it can be more or less neutral you know when we talk about something that is like doesn't have like that isn't loaded a lot there can be quite straightforward ways in which this is happening but it can be really complicated too like silence might sometimes you might remain silent because you think your counterpart will infer something from that silence mm -hmm. and then you 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 have deniability like you can say, well, that's not what I meant. Or, you know, like some, we have this whole discussion about um, silence can be violence, like remaining silent in crucial, crucial points where you ought to speak up um, or where you ought to say something that is like important that like rightfully so that is a really like important thing that we need to keep in mind. But other times remaining silent can also make clear that you don't agree with something. Like if you somebody says like a really like sexist joke, for example, and you just remain silent and look at them, like they will get probably <laughs> that you did like that joke. So that's the kind of complexities that I'm interested in when it comes to that, because I don't think it's straightforward. Yeah. I don't think there is one thing that we can do. And also that we have to distinguish between this literal way of remaining silent, like in an exchange as like, which would be more more like this kind of speech act thing. And then, yeah, what remains unsaid? Because I can say a lot and leave a lot of things unsaid, mm -hmm. but that is a different kind of silence, I think. It's different from this direct, literal silence. Um, so, like, me yeah. remaining silent while you're speaking is pretty yeah. neutral. I mean, it's yeah. not entirely because I could speak speaking over you or yeah. <laughs> not respecting what you're saying, but yeah, it's responding with the silence and how, you know, if someone is confessing something traumatic and you remain silent, that could be a silence of kind of sitting there with the person or it could be a silence of denial. It, it can yeah. really depend on a lot of things. And as you pointed out, some people have more privilege about when they get to choose to remain silent and other people choose to remain silent as an act of self-preservation as well. Exactly. And that's all connected in really interesting ways, I think. And yeah, as you said, that's, that's another aspect of it that some people have a lot of privilege. They don't need to say much in order to be heard. Like if somebody who's had like a lot of like institutional power, for example, in a job interview, for example, is just sitting there very silently, like, you know, all the other people will just be a bit uneasy because of that. But if a person who they expect to be silent, who they expect mm -hmm. not to say much, doesn't say anything, well, they probably won't even notice. Um, and in that way, there's like different, different things, I think, that silence can 
and cannot do. And as you say, there are like very often this is really like interesting paper by Christy Dodson about testimonial smothering, where people just remain silent because, yeah, as you said, um, self-preservation is protection. And that's like, yeah, that's all, all comes into that, I think. And you've also worked on the epistemic connotations and consequences surrounding trigger warning. Yeah. So if we're thinking about silence and about what can be said, what should be said, what is acceptable. And I, I read your paper and it was very, very interesting. I like that you brought it akin to Jose Medina's idea of epistemic virtues and vices. But for those who aren't familiar, could you explain what that means? Yeah, sure. So I mean, in Medina's book, it's like the epistemology of resistance. He does like a lot of things in a book. I think it's a very rich book. Um, and he has this chapter where he talks about um, epistemic vices, epistemic virtues. And the idea is kind of, well, some people will have a certain tendency to have vices, epistemic vices, like arrogance, close-mindedness, and so on, that kind of prevent them from gaining more knowledge about certain things in the world, because they need that in order to make sense of themselves. And he connects that a bit like, he doesn't go into that much detail with it, which is a bit of a shame. This um, notion of needing to not know and not needing to know, and there's a couple of like aspects there, fine-grained <laughs> linguistic differences. But the idea is, well, you need, in order to make sense of yourself as like, you know, a fine person, you need not to know certain things if you have like a tremendous amount of privilege. Or even just like, you know, smaller amounts of privilege. I don't think that it's just like the richest of the rich or something like that, you know, who are who are like affected by that. I guess it's not, it doesn't come in absolutes, I think is the point. For example, if you're epistemically close-minded, you might just, the way in which you acquire knowledge, or at least that's how I read Medina, the way in which you acquire knowledge, you find ways, consciously or unconsciously, to kind of close yourself off to a certain kind of information. And if you're like epistemically arrogant, you might just assume that you know it better anyways and you don't need to um, engage with some other sets of knowledge. And like bringing that to like kind of trigger warning discussion. So I think it's very useful to explain this opposition to trigger warning that often comes from like some liberals, some free speech warriors to describe that as, well, they are concerned about epistemic vices. They think if we use trigger warnings, people have a super easy time to be epistemically arrogant, to be epistemically close-minded and cut off and just be like, well, I don't need to encounter that. But I think they're obviously incredibly wrong. They got it backwards completely. That's exactly not what's happening. But what I was thinking about in a paper is like explaining this, what I call the coddling argument, as a worry about trigger warnings, installing and fostering and bringing out epistemic vices. And then saying, guys, you're really wrong about that. Partly you're wrong about that because you're afraid that trigger warnings will hinder the growing body of knowledge. They will hinder people to gain more knowledge about important things. But what they don't think about is that people who have had traumatic experiences, they need trigger warnings because they already know 
they already know these things. The argument that they're like closing themselves off from challenging new material is completely out of the window once we consider that like there is a reason why they need trigger warnings and and then like of course using a trigger warning doesn't mean to cut yourself off completely it means to be warned and it's something very different yeah there are examples in the paper of trigger warnings at the beginning of a training course saying feel free to step out and recollect yourself if you need to and this actually encouraged people who are trauma survivors to continue the course and to actually engage yeah exactly yeah that's what I think is kind of positive upshot of that that it will actually like Medina has this concept of active ignorance that epistemic vices kind of lead to active ignorance we're trying to be actively ignorant about things and it reproduces itself and it broadens itself when you read these critiques of trigger warnings that's like a tone that they have a lot but I think actually trigger warnings can like contribute to like what you just described maybe something that we might call active knowledge we try to actively engage and they help people to actively engage and to not be cut off because being like having the, a PTSD response trigger that's not that's no joke that doesn't help you to encounter new material if there's new material that relates somehow to your trauma that doesn't help you at all an example that I work with is by Logan Ray, a paper where she describes that kind of scenario that it was like a training session. And in the beginning of the training session, they were like, well, we're going to discuss some material on sexual assault. And if people should feel free to step outside and collect themselves, but it would be good if you come back as soon as you're able to. And that actually enabled people to be just kind of it's okay to do that. It's okay to just take a moment and then, but also you can come back and that's okay. You don't need to be embarrassed by that or anything. Yeah, I think that's that's very important. My only question that I, I don't have an answer to is how do we negotiate doing practical things like that? Like saying, please feel free to leave the room, but please come back if you can with then people having to self-disclose by doing that and I I'm coming from it from a disability point of view as well because especially in universities a lot of accommodations or things can only be gained when you self-disclose and sometimes only when you have a medical diagnosis so I don't know if you've thought about this I just thought I would ask you so yeah, I think that like that's really, really important point. And I've thought a bit about this because I do think that there's like a point to be made that trigger warnings are like kind of relevant in the context of disability, definitely, and are like an an, an issue of accessibility, right? But yeah, I think that you're right that of course it can be really difficult to like kind of when you like take up that offer and get up and go outside in front of a whole classroom you do kind of have to disclose something about yourself that you might not want to disclose. And I think that that is really difficult. And I think that it's very, like, very difficult to, like, find an ideal way to do this because people are complicated. It's not going to be the same for everybody. And there might be a lot of people who are completely fine with doing that. Mm -hmm. But there are others who might instead 
choose to stay because they don't want to go outside because they don't want people to think that they have like experience with that they don't want to out themselves as you know being a survivor for example and they might have good reasons for that but then they might encounter like triggering material which then is just a double bind no like it's a really like difficult double bind i don't have an answer to that no and it's a case of also we have to start somewhere to change the culture and normalize that and in a way that's maybe something that's positive about e-learning is that you can turn your camera off or you can walk away without really disrupting anyone and making a fuss and I think that's something to also keep in mind when things go back to being more on campus and how we can integrate those access points because you're absolutely right you know when people who have post-traumatic stress disorders and things may or may not identify as disabled but those who do will say it is really useful it is an accessibility issue for them to have content warnings or trigger warnings so that they can prepare themselves and get the support that they need and everyone i've personally spoken to they either intend to return to that material later when they're feeling Mm -hmm. more stable or they just want the heads up so yeah they're not sprung yeah. with that exactly and it's like it's it should be like even if like even in the own even if we stay in the like own logic of this kind of argument that people should always engage in these discussions and should learn strive to learn new things if you have the information that like well some of your students or some you know it doesn't just come up in educational contexts that can come up in all kinds of contexts some of the people attending your event or whatever might be really like that have incredibly negative reactions to that. And you could make that better by giving a little warning in their own logic of always engage and always talk about these things and free speech and blah, blah, blah. Making sure that the people who know about these things already are able to contribute should be something that they would, should want to do. Um, If we think about it that way, I mean, I think that shouldn't be the only way in which we think about it, because it should be just in general, like, like a a bit of a, yeah, accommodation that isn't hard to make. For me, it, it goes to the heart of what we view as an epistemic virtue, because I think the coddling argument is really saying, I was noticing words like, anti-fragility and things which Mm -hmm. coming from a feminist perspective is very foreign in the sense of Mm -hmm. like why should we be anti-fragile you're like no it's about how do we acknowledge vulnerability and cultivate power within that and so I think it's two very different ways of approaching either it's like oh exposure therapy just hit you on the head until you don't feel the pain anymore or it's saying, I acknowledge that you have multiple stressors. And I think yeah. that's something you point out at the very end of the article when you say, we have to acknowledge that the classroom is already not safe for mm-hmm. a lot of people. It's not safe for students of color. It's not safe mm-hmm. for trans trans students. So really having trigger warnings is acknowledging that n- not everyone shows up with the same permeability to all knowledge 
like that's that's definitely it and i think that you're right about this kind of well you need to kind of be anti-fragile our systems are anti-fragile that's kind of the claim um with that book the recordings the american mind that i engaged with they're like well our minds are anti-fragile as the stock trader a stock trader says for example they like draw on like that kind of theory i mean it's a bit more psychological than that but it's like well sure our economic systems are anti-fragile they need stresses so that do our minds it's like well great analogy <laughs> um really <laughs> is that the analogy you want to draw <laughs> but okay and <laughs> and it's just like well that's just not how it works i feel and like so many people will say that's not how it works and sure it's good probably for like the human mind or whatever to like get input and get new kind of information and stuff but triggering trauma is not the kind of stressor that is required to like get yeah to get forward to to develop to gain new knowledge no i just think that's like very clear for me i know that a lot of people disagree with that but yeah and it's like in a way i think that if we want to talk about epistemic virtues as well, like maybe openness, um, epistemic openness, that like trigger warnings can help us in a way to get there because they kind of, you know, also show to like, if I give a trigger warning in a class, for example, well, I need to think about that. Like I need to think about who, who could be affected by this, how, and like I might get it wrong. I might need to like, you know, be addressed by a student that wasn't great and I have to learn from that and you need to be open to do that. But you do have to like kind of do that work, I think. And also, I mean, if there's a trigger warning, for example, it also shows to like other students. Well, not everybody starts from the same kind of thing. You might know less than others about these. Some people might have very like intimate experience with these kind of issues and that kind of can help to just build a sense of that kind of epistemic community as a very diverse community. And I think that it can do a lot of positive things. Yeah, I've started at the saying at the beginning of my classes, especially when I teach the feminist philosophy course about, well, you know, and we're talking about sexual assault or things, I say statistically, most yeah. people in this class today have some experience with that. And yeah. so let's just keep that in mind as we discuss these theoretical points, you know, I want us to have, it is an academic space, so we want to have an academic discussion about it. And I don't want you to be afraid to voice opinions that you're unsure of because we're all still learning, but yeah, try and do it in a respectful way that keeps in mind that you have no yeah. idea of the person you're talking to has a personal experience with this. And I found it, I'm curious to see if you've experienced this as well, that I have to go through a whole process mm. to teach something that triggers me. So sometimes as educators, yeah. we are presenting material and I might agree that this is material that should be presented, but I find it also triggering and I need to process that on my own yeah. before presenting that. Yeah. Have you experienced that? Yeah, definitely. Like, absolutely. And especially, I think, when we teach topics like you know like a lot of these topics that come up in feminist philosophy to contain a lot of this material and um, they can be triggering and I haven't found a way to like properly like deal with that but I think kind of 
as you just said, well, let's keep in mind that these are things that like are lived reality for a lot of people. It kind of, yeah, helps in a way. And I definitely like, that's one of the things that like also made me think about this in the first place was, well, I have all the time to prepare that material at home. I have the time to read that paper. I know that I'm going to give them this paper to read. I have the time to prepare the lecture. And still, some of this material can be really, like, tough. And, like, then some students who might have really, like, relevant experiences just, you know, might not have read the paper, might not have had the time to engage with the material in that much detail. And, like, how difficult must it then be to do that just, out of nowhere when it just comes at you in a lecture and that I think is like one of the reasons why I was thinking about this as well and this whole topic and yeah it's like as as like educators as like teachers you're definitely also part of that of that whole thing and that's not easy to handle either yeah it's it it takes some work it is it is part of the preparation work you do you don't just create powerpoint slides you kind of have to go through it and to get yourself in that mode where you're ready to present it i've also started disclosing at the beginning mm-hmm. if i found anything particularly difficult i don't know if that's a good practice or not i'm just kind of testing it out yeah. because i do i do believe like if i present myself being like you know this was a very triggering paper for me that might color the kind of discussions that arise however it might be colored by my tone anyway (laughs) of how I present things and sometimes part of me feels that it's good to normalize that you know I'm not just a neutral purveyor of knowledge that's spouting at them but I also my my philosophical practice is also embodied and I'm a human being yeah yeah exactly absolutely I think that's really important as well, especially like, yeah, teaching undergrads, they just come from school and most kids in school, like teachers have like a very, I don't know, it depends, I guess, how the their teacher's teacher training was. Um, but I, normally, as far as I remember from school, it was often that like teachers were presenting themselves these objective, like neutral beings that could just like make the right decision and have the right opinion about something which obviously is wrong and a very like bad way to teach but it's like ingrained if you went through like a school system like for eight or to ten years however long and then you come to uni for one as a teacher as like teaching at uni you have to try to like actively not do that I think and also like show the kids, show the students. I mean, kids is probably the wrong word, but they're a little bit kids with 18. Yeah, um, they are, yeah. <laughs> um, that like, that's kind of, you know, that like you're, you're not, this is like philosophy. This is something we have to figure out together. Like I don't have the definite answers to a lot of these things. I might know a bit more about it because I've done it for longer. But yeah, as you say, it's like these kind of disclosing things on different levels can be really helpful I found that really helpful I remember teachers doing that at uni and I found them much more approachable from the beginning and I was much more comfortable speaking in those classes than in some other classes where it was just really like neutral in a way fake neutral because it's not yeah no that's I think it's something that should be taught more 
Like, this is something I, I came to on my own through frequenting feminist spaces and things. But it was definitely not in my how to tutor this class mm. seminar. So what are you working on right now? So right now I'm thinking specifically about... So for one, I'm redrafting my, my dissertation. I'm just kind of doing a bit stuff on implicature. And, you know, my thing is I'm saying... I didn't say that in the beginning. That we can, like, implicate with silence, conversationally implicate with silence. Implicature being that, like, very analytical philosophy of language tool, which, you know, is criticized along various lines. And I'm, like, also expanding the framework to account for silence. And I'm trying to, like, allow to make room for more possibilities of implicature that are in like less than ideal circumstances where not everybody has the same background information and so on and so forth because that's often the assumption where not everybody's 100% on the same page with stuff and that's for one something I'm just doing now I'm like kind of rewriting a chapter where I think a bit more about how about silence in very like unfortunate or like very unfortunate is the wrong word in like uneven situations in hmm. where different people have different you know, preconceptions about what they're talking about. Um, mm. And the other thing that I'm thinking about is, so given that, like, I think that silence can be an active conversational contribution, I think that people can, people's silence can be silenced, which sounds really weird. <laughs> um, but, like, I think that it's true. Like, as I said before, some people might need very little to make themselves heard and others who are expected to be silent might not you know be able to be heard at all so I'm I have this one example where I kind of so it's, it's an example that comes up in the literature now and again it's this like tactic acceptance procedure that like big groups use to kind of make decisions so the person the chairperson calls like everybody in agreement and unless you speak up your silence counts mm -hmm. as agreement. And I've constructed this example, but I'm, I'm sure it must have happened at some point to somebody because I think in some ways, in various forms, slightly different forms, it's happened to me. So that there's like this group of people, like 20 people or something in a new, in like a group, in their um, working group in their life or whatever. And the guy who's chairing, it's mostly men and there's like one woman there and the guy who's chairing is kind of calling out to you, yeah, is that fine? Like, do we accept this kind of policy? And then everybody accepts, nobody speaks up. And then he notes in his in, in the minutes, well, all 19 people agree. And then afterwards, like, the one woman who was there sees that in the minutes and was like, well, 19? Like, I was there too. Like, I agree too. And he was like, well, I didn't think that you had an opinion on that. So in that way, her like silent tactic acceptance would have just been rendered completely irrelevant by that guy. Yeah. Um, she wasn't able to silently accept like the others were. And then there's like scenarios where this could go completely different. Like I was in a seminar once where I I was it was it was a class I knew a bunch of stuff about already. And I was really tired, I don't remember exactly, but it was very few people. And across from me, there was sitting this guy, and I never kind of like, you know, I 
never talk to him. And after a couple of like lessons, I got to talk to him after class and he sent me a Facebook friend request and just started messaging me. And I, I was like, hi. <laughs> he was like, oh yeah, um, now that I've talked to you, you're actually really nice. And I was like, okay. And he said, yeah, I mean, you were just coming across as super arrogant in the class. And I was like, well, but I, like last last class, I didn't even say anything. And he was like, well, your silence was arrogant too. <laughs> and it was just like, I wasn't, I remember that distinctively because that time I was so tired that I wasn't engaging a lot in the class. And I guess that gets noted for one when it's a person who's engaged much more in the past, but also if there's just like very few people, there were like five people in a seminar, six people maybe. And that was just like, I wasn't, I wasn't intending to do anything with that silence, but it still got taken up as arrogant somehow by that guy. And I think I kind of want to make sense of examples like that, how silence can be so, you know, misconstrued from these kind of like sexist point of points of view. And like, yeah, it's just these problematic kind of because of problematic pre preconceptions and so on. So treating silence as a part of language. Yeah, really. yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I'd like to end by asking mm -hmm. people what you're reading right now that's exciting you or giving you joy, whether in philosophy or not. Yeah, so I'm reading like, it's kind of not related to my work directly. I'm reading like two books in tandem on and off right now. And one of them is like a collection by... Um, Silvia Federici, um, and it's called Reenchanting the World, Feminism and the Politics of the Commons. Um, and I really like it. Um, I've just read like the first couple of chapters. Um, it's a collection of work that she's done, like, you know, in feminist Marxist work over the last, I, I think, 20 years. And some of the essays in there are just much older and some are new contributions and so on. And it's just kind of about you know, how we can, like, imagine a, like, corporation living together um, apart from neoliberal capitalist kind of, like, structures. And it's very nice to read. And the other one I'm reading is called The Feminist and the Sex Offender. And it sounds like it's not. So I, I, I had this book lying and, like, somebody came in. I had it lying on my, on my, on my desk and somebody came in and was like, sounds like the worst fairy tale ever it sounds like <laughs> a bad romance yeah. <laughs> um, but like so the uh, subtitle is like um confronting sexual harm and ending state violence and it's you know kind of towards an abolitionist feminism there need to be like answers to sexual violence that like don't include the police prisons mm -hmm. and why that isn't actually helping us why those institutions aren't actually like bringing us anywhere close to what we might call justice, but rather the kind of state violence that is happening under these labels. And I think it's very accessible in the way in which it's written. I haven't written all of it yet. Um, I bought it ages ago and I'm just going on and off on it now. But I've started reading it a bit more again in the last few weeks. Um, and I can recommend it. I think it's a very like, accessible kind of way to discussing these issues which I think are super important that's great I'll link them in the show notes yeah. if people want to find them out yeah 
Uh, is there anywhere you would like people to find you and or your work? Um, so I'm on Twitter. I, I can say my Twitter handle. I think it's right now a underline no name name. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, I kind of like if I have like work, then I kind of when I have stuff, talks or whatever, I would make a note about it there. Um, I don't have a website or anything. But yeah, people can find me and message me on Twitter if they want. And then I can also give out an email address or whatever, or send papers if people are interested in reading stuff. The papers we mentioned in this in, in, in our conversation aren't published yet. Like some mm-hmm. of them are under review and and so on. But like if people are interested, I'm happy to, you know, give drafts out and stuff. So yeah. Yeah, definitely. Or alternatively if people contact the podcast I can put you in touch yeah, with exactly. as well yeah. and when they are published we will link to them <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> all right thank you so much for giving me your time thank you and good luck thank with you your much. rewriting oh, thanks so much for having me bye and that's it for this week You can follow Philosophy Casting Call on Facebook or on Instagram and Twitter at philocpod. You can always message me at philosophycastingcallpod at gmail.com if you would like to be a guest on the show or if you know someone who would like to be a guest on the show. You can follow me personally at Elena G. Mamoril on Twitter. And you can support the podcast by donating to our Ko-Fi account, which is ko-fi.com forward slash philocpod. You can give a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. And all of that will help me continue to produce new and exciting episodes. Also, if you could please rate and review the podcast, this will allow other people to find it more easily. And I will see you in two weeks. Bye.